who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed in our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender soot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before the shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sins of many and made intercessions for the transgressors. This is God's word. Please be seated. We're traveling back to Bethlehem. We will arrive there next week in Bethlehem, but we're going in reverse chronological order, looking at Jesus's... Go ahead to the next slide, please. At his high priestly ministry. That's what Pastor David gave us a few weeks ago. Then last week we looked at his resurrection, and today his death on the cross as the Lamb of God. 
Because he rose, we will rise. Because he died, our sins died with him. This is the great doctrine of union with Christ. As we sang this morning, we are hidden with Christ in God. My life is uh, enveloped in him. When God looks at him, we receive all the loving kindness and favor that he feels toward his beloved son. Another phrase that teaches us that same doctrine of union with Christ is from Ephesians, accepted in the beloved. Isn't that a nice phrase? We are accepted in him. Because he is beloved, we are beloved. Between my sophomore and uh, junior years of college in the summer, I traveled across the country to see my new girlfriend, Liz Hansen. I got on a bus in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, traveled 75 hours, arrived in Medford, Oregon, to see Liz. The bus pulled into the station about midnight, and Liz was there to meet me, and her mother was there also. Liz introduced me to her mother. We had never met before. Jeff, this is my mother. Mom, this is Jeff. She took my hand and she said, I'm glad to meet you. We drove to their house, 46 Summit Avenue, entered the front door, and Mrs. Hansen said, Now, Jeff, uh, this will be your room. She said, Are you hungry? I said, Uh huh. We went to the kitchen. And while I was eating, she said, Now, Jeff, um, while you're visiting, you may want to borrow the car. Here are the car keys. Why did she do that? I mean, we were strangers. You may say, well, because she's nice. She's a good person, and that's true. If a hungry person came to her front door, I'm sure she would give him a sandwich and maybe some work to do around the house to earn some money. I don't know that she would give him the guest room and the car keys. No, she extended grace to me because I was accepted in the beloved, in her beloved baby daughter, Liz. I guess she thought, if Liz loves this person, that's good enough for me. We are accepted in the beloved. Because he rose... We will rise because he died. The road to Bethlehem travels at the foot of Mount Calvary because he died. Our sins have died with him. Our passage today is one of the towering peaks in the theological Himalayas of the Bible. Pray as I'm speaking that the Lord would give me utterance. Pray that he would open your heart and give you ears to hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God 
that takes away the sin of the world. So to help us get our arms around this passage, let me just raise three simple questions and see how our text answers them. Question number one, what did he do? Answer, he suffered. We naturally tend to think of this uh, this suffering in physical terms. It certainly was that, the crown of thorns and the whipping and the cross. But realize that his suffering was also emotional, social. The scripture says he was despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was betrayed. Have you ever been betrayed? This is so important to the passion of Jesus Christ and to the depiction of his suffering that we have uh, kind of uh, uh, enshrined this emotional suffering in our communion ceremony. In other words, how, does, how do we always begin communion? On the night he was betrayed. I'm speaking to some people who have been betrayed and rejected. Does it stir your heart and comfort you even in your sorrow to know he was betrayed and rejected? And that he has carried your sorrow, not just your sins, but your brokenness. Union with Christ. We were included in his death. And does it comfort you and does it give you hope that Christ will never betray you? And that in Christ... The Father will never forsake you. What did he do? He suffered uh, emotionally. And of course, he suffered physically. We know that. He was stricken. He was smitten. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was crushed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes, his wounds, the whipping, we are healed. His appearance was marred beyond human semblance. If you want to understand this physical suffering of our Lord, if you want to see it described in very clinical, um, physiological, scientific terminology, you may want to check out the Journal of the American Medical Association, an article back in 1986 on the physical death of Jesus Christ. Very medical, very scientific, very technical language, but it goes into detail on what was crucifixion crucifixion like and what was Jesus' crucifixion in particular like. And the 
the article uh, summarizes that death resulted primarily from hypovolemic shock and exhaustion asphyxia. What does that mean? I had to look up some words on that. Hypo, the prefix hypo, as you probably know, means under, like a hypodermic needle. Here's your dermis here, hypo, under the skin. Hypovolemic, that's, a, we, that's the same root as volume, volemic. It makes an adjective out of that. So the idea is that his blood quantity, particularly plasma, dropped so low, he was sweating, he was bleeding, He was dehydrated on the cross. He said, I thirst. His blood pressure and his blood so thickened that it was very difficult for his heart to push the blood through his system and hypovolemic shock. And asphyxia means uh, uh, choking, strangling, not enough oxygen. The idea is uh, when you are crucified, your rib cage is expanded. So it's kind of hard to breathe because uh, your, your diaphragm is already in an extended position. And so in order to breathe easily, you have to pull yourself up so you can breathe. You can't hold that. You go... And after a while, exhaustion. The point is, he suffered emotionally, physically. Second question why did he do this? Does it surprise you that the answer our passage gives is that it was the Lord's will? The idea is, as he himself said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down in subjection, obedience, submission to the Father. It is the Lord's will, and I say, yes, sir. He was not the victim of circumstance. He was not the victim of a plot. There was a plot, but that can't snare him. He was not an unsuspecting pedestrian on the sidewalk, struck by a motorist or killed by a terrorist. No, you can't take the life of the Son of God. He must lay it down in subjection to the Lord's will. But that kind of begs the question, why did he die? Because it was the Lord's will. The question is, why was it the Lord's will? Can you wrap your head around this? You parents, can you wrap your head around this? It was the Lord's will him. Why? What does the rest of the verse say? He makes his soul an offering for guilt. He was a sacrifice. He was a lamb. John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God. Somehow, in some mysterious transaction that we don't fully understand, 
somehow on the cross with this tremendous suffering, somehow he was dying in place of us. Our sin was laid on him, my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. The New Testament puts it this way. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. Towering theology. And we... We stand on tiptoes trying to look over to fully understand this, a high hedge, and we understand that over on the other side of the hedge is a high green country, and we try to understand this substitutionary atonement of Jesus. Let Let me do my best to try to explain this, but realizing that it's, we're in the realm of mystery at this point. So here's the idea. God created the world perfect. And I just mean perfect. It was beautiful. It was harmonious. The Garden of Eden. It was delightful. There was no broken fellowship between us and each other and between us and God. It was just delightful. He created everything and he said, it is good. You remember? He uh, he created the sun and the moon and the stars. It is good. And he created the earth and he divided the dry land from the water. Oh, it is good. And he created uh, uh, vegetation and plants. It is good. He created animals. Oh, that's very good. And he came to the humans, man and woman, and he said, very, very good. And then, we committed in the person of our ancestors, but we've been following in their steps ever since, we committed cosmic treason. And the relationship between each other was broken, and the relationship between us and God was broken, and really the relationship intrapersonally was broken, and the the environment, the, the nature was broken, and here we are today. Here's the world we live in. Fallen. But God didn't turn his back on us. He is determined to make things right between, between each other and between us and him. He's determined to take us back to Eden, the way he planned it and created it. I'll get us back to that. You know, once the milk is spilled, you can't put the milk back in the glass. Think of it this way. You are a guest in a lovely house. The house is clean, It is nicely decorated. It is well lit. It is perfect. It is like Eden. And then you make a mistake. You're backing up and you bump into the uh, coffee table and you break the lamp. How can we restore the Edenic state of the house that has been plunged into darkness? What options do we have 
or returning to Eden? Well, one option is um, you can pay for it. You can bear the debt, and you can uh, scrape up your money, and you can try to uh, buy a new lamp and make things the way they were. But the problem with this option is you can't. Because it turns out that this is a very, very expensive lamp. Work with me on this, okay? (laughs) I mean, this is a priceless antique, and you don't have any money, and it's way beyond you, and uh, option number one is really not an option. Option number two is the household can simply exist in its fallen state. It'll be kind of dark, and you won't be able to see the beautiful artwork on the walls, and uh, people will trip over things. So it turns out that's not really an option either, because the owner of the house says, I don't want that. This is not what I intended. This is not a reflection of me. Option number three, the owner says, well, I guess... I guess I'll have to make things right. I will bear the cost. I will replace the lamp to get us back to where you want to be, where you belong, where I want you to be. You understand my analogy. At great cost to himself, there on the cross, the father turned, the sun grew dark, the sun became accursed. Somehow, We're looking over the hedge into the realm of mystery. Somehow, there on the cross, a great substitute was made. You were on that cross. Your sins died. The wrath of God was poured out on you. Now, you are forgiven. The lamp shines. He is reworking and remolding and taking you and me back to Eden. Unbroken fellowship between each other. I know it's not perfect. We're getting there, though. Unbroken fellowship with him. And one day, even all of creation, the house will be restored. Because he was the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin of the world. The mighty Mississippi River is regularly dredged to keep the channel open. Enormous shovels out in in the channel uh, uh, scoop up sand and debris from the the channel and load it on barges, and then the barges go uh, to the banks of the river and unload, and soon you get huge piles of sand all along the banks of the river. 
Well, few things are so enticing to children to play on than a huge pile of sand, but few things are also so dangerous. You see, when the sand pile dries, it leaves a crust on top, and underneath, because of the water uh, 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 siphoning out and evaporating, it can actually create a cavern an empty space underneath that crust. So you can easily uh, be walking on that crust and fall through, and then when you break through the surface, the sand rushes in to fill that void, and it can cover you up, and that's exactly what happened. Two brothers were playing on the sand pile. They were on the crust. They broke through. They fell in. The sand rushed in. The two boys did not return home for dinner. The family was worried. They got the neighbors. They formed a search party. They found the younger brother buried up to his shoulders and neck. He was unconscious because he couldn't breathe the constricting sand. They quickly dug him out and uh, freed him enough, and he he revived. And they said, where is your brother? He said... I'm standing on his shoulders. The older brother gave his life. It was the only option. By his passion and crucifixion, his emotional and physical suffering, Jesus rescued us. Third question, final question. What responses, what reactions did this sacrificing of the Lamb of God produce? One reaction is amazement. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. It's sort of like, it's sort of like, what? What? The Son of God? The Messiah? And that amazement prompts belief. It's phrased this way in chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report? It's phrased as a question. The idea is, uh, so, do you believe it? You ought to believe this. I know it's amazing. This is the truth. And so I ask you, have you believed? By faith, Have you seen yourself, your own need, your own uh, uh, breaking of the lamp of the house, or as our passage says, like a sheep that's gone astray, have you seen, do you believe this about yourself? Do you believe this about the Lamb of God? You may say, wow, I just thought that Jesus was, you know, like a good guy, like a nice guy, but now through this passage, God has showed us that he is the Lamb of God of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So we believe. We love him. We thank him. We honor him. And I would like to conclude 
by giving you a chance to believe. Here are two um, helps you might want to avail yourself of in order to place your faith in Christ. The first help is by uh, talking with someone. Uh, counseling, praying together. You know, after every service, we have a couple of people stationed up here for prayer. And if you want to explore this more, and if you want to believe, and if you want someone to talk to you and maybe give you some advice or perspective, you want someone to pray for you, come on forward. You don't have to be embarrassed to do that. We'll all be mulling around and come forward and seal this deal. Believe in him. The second um, uh, service you may want to avail yourself of is that you may want to pray right now, silently, just in your seat. I'm going to ask us in a second to bow our heads. Please don't be looking around. This is between you and God and just in deference to other people who are doing business with God. Pray something like this. to Tell him you want to believe. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Dear Lord, you sent your son Jesus to be the Lamb of God. He paid for the sins of humanity. He paid for my sins. I believe this. And I'll commit myself to following you. And now while your heads are still bowed, If you prayed that prayer to commit yourself to Christ, and if you would like to inform me of that, would you simply look up at me and make eye contact with me? I won't call you out. I won't single you out. on my left, your right, I commit myself to Christ. I believe. Yes, here on my right side, your left side, I want to believe in Jesus. Here in the front, in the middle, thank you. Yes, Yes. May God help you to trust him, serve him, love him, believe in him all the days of your life. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you have showed us from your holy word that Jesus suffered emotionally and physically by bearing sorrows and the fallenness and the sin of humanity. Lord, we believe. Help us to follow you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.